1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition. Over 125 years ago, the Columbian Exposition was staged in Chicago on Lake Michigan's shoreline. Visitors from around the country and world were first introduced to many industrial technologies and commercial offerings that would shape 20th century culture. This book explores a collection of event photographs and juxtaposes them against a set of modern images to catalog the living remnants in art and architecture around the city as a legacy to the 1893 World's Fair. 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition, now available from Amazon. Audiobook version available soon. Hey there, welcome to Party Line Chat. This is our Discord group. We hang out together and talk about all kinds of fun things that we like to pay attention to. I'm going to go down the line and introduce everybody that's hanging out. I know there's a couple people I didn't get to tag because basically uh, we got such a huge group in here, but I will make sure to tag you on Twitter as well. So, uh, in no particular order, we are looking at Archaic Story. Raft, you want to say hello? If you're out there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, Brogman. Yo, what's up? What's going on? Uh, Kalti, Jordan. What's up, guys? Fluid, Will, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hey, this is Will, Fluid Fluxation on Twitter. You guys probably see me around, and uh, yeah. Inertia. Hey everyone, this is Tim. Uh, Twitter, Nisha here. Phil? Coin Alchemist on Twitter. How you doing? What's going on? Paul? Hey everyone, it's Paul. PJM says on Twitter. Sure, we got Oscar. Hey, I'm a quail on Twitter, and yeah. Excellent. Ted? Hey, this is Evan, Teddy ET on Twitter. And we also have Logan today joining for the first time. I'm John Deleuze on Twitter. We got a handful and... of mute people, but it's all right. Nice. Yeah. Hey, sorry. Uh, my mouth was full of food, so I didn't want to impose that on you guys. At that point. <laughs> Hello, guys. Yeah, yeah. Wrap. So first thing I want to kind of get into first today is uh, the Nash series that I put together with uh, Jal Sokobatoshi. I don't know who listened to it who hasn't yet, but anybody that has or or hasn't yet. It's basically about John Nash, the mathematician, uh, his work, Ideal Money, a few other insights that he had in the early 50s, and then making the connection between Ideal Money and Bitcoin. Who has heard it? Who hasn't? I haven't completed your series yet. I've watched, uh, uh, watched session one and two so far. And then uh, last night I actually watched a kind of a mini documentary that um, Jal had posted uh, and said to watch. It was like a little less than an hour. I started watching that. Oh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that because I, I saw him post that and I saw like he timestamped some link in particular that he was sending to uh, Randy. And I saw from the link, mm-hmm. he, the timestamp he was sending, but I didn't I didn't have a chance to sit and watch the whole thing. So I'd be curious as the chat goes on to uh, hear. I didn't make it there. That. The timestamp was like 54 minutes and some seconds. Yeah, it was like the last five minutes or something. Yeah, the video is 55 minutes long and, uh, and I fell asleep probably about 40 minutes in because it was like <laughs> 2, 3 a.m. Like it's like, yeah, I got like I got 15 minutes into that um, posted um, mini doc last night um, as well, and so yeah, it's just kind of the appetizer for your series, Michael. So I'm super excited to 
what chew do you into guys that. Think about Nash or even Jal, because as a personality on Twitter, he's perceived as one thing, and I would say that uh, my conversations with him are very different than what I believe people's perceptions are, which may also drive some of the interest in listening to our conversations. Uh, but the other side of that is I, I think that um, he is very dialed in on his his take on Nash, and also I don't think that he's necessarily the person that, that people perceive him as on Twitter. For those of you that have heard it. Well, I think when you uh, when you absorb yourself into any topic, um, it, it, it I've talked about it before, you know, I call it like a neocomplex, you know, referring to like Neo from the Matrix, where you then create a reality where everything relates to, you know, what your focus is on. Um, and I haven't, I, you know, I'm not, I obviously my, uh, my focus isn't on specifically Nash and how Nash and his theories, um, impact the world that we live in. But I almost get a sense that that is what is happening because everything goes back to Nash or Nash's work. Um, so, I mean, I don't align fully, but I appreciate his his viewpoint, and it's opened my eyes to a lot of things about Nash that I didn't know before and made me want to take a deeper um, look into that. <clears throat> you know, I try and think of every person as your teacher, right? Like, whether, whether they're uh, initially thought of as, like, an enemy or a friend or whatever, like, no man is really a friend, no man's an enemy, every man's a teacher, you know, is a saying that I heard a long time ago. And even though we, we consider people our friends, our kin or whatever, but you can take something from every person in every situation and whether it's uh, something that you shouldn't do because of um, <clears throat> because of actions that are taking place in front of you that you're seeing or uh, maybe a, a lesson that you've learned from some wrongdoing of who you're watching or you grow from like what it is. And yeah, I think that maybe the absorption in Nash takes away from other things that or other uh, respectable viewpoints because everything has to pull back to, to that. And I don't think that it necessarily works that way. But, and the thing is that if you don't see it that way, he really tries to make you see it that way. And there's no compromise, you know, it's very, it's Nash or it's nothing. <laughs> I don't no, disagree I with that to some, in, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I haven't had the, uh, the personal, I'm, I'm giving you a, a, a view from what you see on Twitter, right? Of course. From a Twitter yeah. conversation and interactions, it's that it's Nash or it can't be any other way. Like, and, uh, and obviously I don't agree with that because I have a very generalist view of how uh, things kind of intertwine and create a reality rather than a, like this person or this person's views are how everything was. That's not that's not unfair. I think that Nash has a very uh, broad view, and that it because it is so flexible, it is able to be used as such a uh, universal lens in a lot of different ways. You know. Yeah, you know the one thing that I get with on when it comes to ideal money in particular is I think Jell's argument is like pretty hard to argue with. You know, like 
especially when you can kind of like see through the weeds and get kind of to like the source and the meat of the argument. You know, he makes a very compelling case about Bitcoin's capacity to fulfill this kind of inner exchange role and to be kind of the metronome or the measuring stick atop which, you know, central banks can coordinate their actions. And, and, you know, I don't think I've ever seen anybody any anywhere come anywhere close to like better representing Nash's ideals than Jal's like, you know, Bitcoin analogy here. The kind of thing that I get stuck on is I'm not sure, and this was uh, somebody said this, Urban Arson said this to me the other day when we were discussing this, and we were kind of debating whether or not the world even wants ideal money. Like, even like, so if we assume we're all looking for ideal money and whether, and like, you know, this is the end game of money and this is how we like, you know, end wars and synchronize the planet and, you know, coordinate these nation states and their, you know, financial and economic interests, uh, ideal money is like, and, and Bitcoin as ideal money is a very compelling case. But then there's also the notion that, you know, like I, I think I, I probably haven't spent enough time thinking about is what about the scenario where just nobody or at least a couple of the big players don't want to play ball with this. They don't want to participate in ideal money. And, I, and I'm not really sure how how that manifests. Like, like there is kind of this notion within the Bitcoin community of the hyper Bitcoinization where, you know, the, so you know, what even I would not say a part of it, it's going to happen. To go along uh, I don't with know. that is when yeah. you start to listen to his view on what ideal money is, it's also important to look at his perspective on ICPI. If, if you guys have looked at any of that, it does get addressed in segment two. So International Consumer Price Index, which is kind of, it's one yeah. more step back from the, the like a national. I want to break something up CPI. real fast. Like sure. from when I, when I just said, I just want to clarify that I don't, there are three parts of what I said, right? Like, I don't necessarily agree that everything that Nash, uh, as genius as he was, that everything can uh, be applied to, or that everything when applied to our world is right. Okay, like, I don't think that's the only way. Mm. Um, but I agree mostly with what I know so far about the ideal money and Bitcoin connection. And then the third part is that when I was saying what I was saying about uh, the neocomplex and stuff like that, that is in reference to how the the him on Twitter can be interpreted, mm-hmm. not my personal interpretation of him. Sure. Or okay. The, <laughs> I wanted to get premise for that. I, I've learned having a few conversations with Jal, like voice chats um, over the last month or so, is that – you know, this is something that he came to a while ago. He has been looking for ways to um, get that message out there, but also he's been crystallizing his perspective over time. So it's not that it's um, it's not that it's this hard stone kind of thing for him. He does he does kind of uh, evolve his perspective over time, as I understand it, and. This point in particular, I think, also leads me into another kind of timely question and something that we've been looking at over the last week or two. Uh, And I would say it's been gaining steam over the year of 2019 so far would be Bitcoin SV. You know, I know a few people in our group have been exploring that or at least paying attention to it. So who who amongst us is checking out bitcoin sv or has or intends to i yeah, i've been not. 
<laughs> one at a time, please. <laughs> I mean, I think in, in, I've just been thinking about it. I haven't bought any yet. Um, I've just been kind of like looking at it from an outsider's perspective. I mean, I haven't. I'm not a programmer in any sort of way. Um, so I can't really look at like the internals of it. I, I don't know how robust the code is, but it seems like the work that Unwriter is doing is, is awesome. It, it kind of expands the vision of Bitcoin beyond just Unwriter is. Um, honestly, I think it's like a Satoshi situation where, where we'll never know. I think it'll just be like a a, a pseudonym kind of thing. And I, I love it because it's like he's kind of unwriting past Bitcoin history and creating his own. Like I think it's a really interesting name. No, the thing I, I've thought with it is I think, you know, maybe we'll never know this or have clarification and hopefully it is a Satoshi situation, but I've almost thought like it has to be a group of people, not a single person, just Absolutely. based on the sheer volume of like How new things coming out. Yeah, it's it's absolutely <clears throat> a remarkable speed, and I so I've been following the community for a while and like watching a lot of the stuff. I haven't actually deployed any code onto the Bitcoin SV chain so far, so I haven't really done anything with Bitcoin SV. But I've been watching it both from like a token, you know, holding standpoint, but then also just kind of following some of this computational technology that's coming. Uh, before we get too far from Jal, maybe this is worth mentioning was, and I think this is like a today um, involvement, and this could just be, I, I don't think it's a troll because we were kind of going back and forth on a DM about it, but Jal just today seemed to be sort of taking arms up alongside Kevin Pham, ironically. And uh, so Kevin Pham, like last night, he or yesterday at some point, you know, he had some, uh, you know, broke Bitcoin maximalism woke bitcoin marxism and he was calling you know the course of and, you know we all know how how, how uh, inflammatory kevin can be um but you know jow commented in like something like oh wait that was my idea or something like that and then today he changed his profile picture to a cat in a bulletproof vest like standing in solidarity with kevin fam and, <laughs> and and he seemed to be like like he just tweeted something right before we hopped on here that was like you know i don't want safadine's shit coin and and a few different things and me and him were kind of going back and forth on it and i, I asked him like you know, where is this coming from, assuming it's not a troll? And um, he seemed to be expressing some some newer found frustrations with the core community. And this doesn't specifically mean just the Bitcoin core developers, but, you know, just generally all the Bitcoin core developers, the cool kids that are the biggest proponents, like the popular kids on Bitcoin Twitter. And I then you you're know, very correct about all that. And just, you know, as a background insight, because I'm obviously I talked to Jal um, and have been like, pretty consistently over the last month uh yeah that is true what you're what you're seeing is is pretty true and also what it gets at is the narrative that everybody should be running a node and that the entire blockchain should be accessible via uh via a raspberry pi because it's cheap and it's like very uh easily distributed and some buy buy ours for three (laughs) hundred dollars right right so um you know that's just not necessarily in line with high end plastic some some aspects of the narrative and it is for other people but that's just i think ultimately why every chain's going to get a chance because it's going to solve different problems well do you think philosophically for a second about the problems that we're trying to solve i was reading an article about the um i'm trying to go through dostoevsky right now um and so I was reading an article about like the futility of utopianism because you have to think about the individuals that you're trying to help and the ability to describe to them the problems that they're having and like how to take a surf and explain to him like I don't know some 
it's it's a really difficult concept for me to kind of Everything extrapolate upon. Local language to explain it to a mind that was developed locally from the language that they used, right? So, correct. What terms or analogies we use, they need to be culturally um, relevant, I believe. Do you look at the champions of these forks as well and how they would translate? Because I, I try to look at things as like a marketing perspective too. And if you need adoption, you need trust. And a lot of these characters are kind of creating things that I would, as a salesman, have trouble kind of correlating into a positive transaction to an individual um, in order to kind of sustain my business model. It doesn't always work that way though, right? Because you Correct. have examples like uh, – we could just look at Bitcoin Cash when it first forked. Uh, Roger Veer wasn't an evil player in the Bitcoin community at the time. Right. Um, and, and that didn't work out with all the marketing that they did and pushing and, and everything. Um, it, it worked in the beginning because people saw it as a viable uh, option for for big blocks. So it was like an escape because 2x didn't happen or it was never going to happen. And it was all ploy anyway to uh, t- to move hash and, and money and business to bch that didn't yeah. work and we look at dash and dash has a marketing department has a marketing fund puts tons of money into marketing and how has that worked out you know it, the the marketing aspect is one part of it and you need people to be aware of your project and what you're doing but it's not the most important part you know like the most important Correct. part in my mind is does it really work and and are you marketing it to the right people that will then push it farther? Um, I, you know, I was laughing and, and Logan can kind of um, comment on it because it's his project that he's working on. But like, I love the primer page because it, it's not marketing to the general public, right? Like for Urbit, when you, when you read it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not marketing to your average consumer. Right. Um, and I think that's kind of the right way to go about it because then it spreads within that community of people that will actually use and love the product to then help it grow and gain adoption um, because then it has a real network of users that really understand kind of the underlying technology and, and how it's supposed to work, not how some guy with money thinks it should work. But what is the difference between that and, say, the inception of Bitcoin on forums for cypherpunks and it's had over a decade to kind of gestate and it's still finding huge problems with you have to remember that there was more than there were so many more than just Bitcoin, and there were so many before bitcoin that didn't work it was that bitcoin fit the right like niche at the time you know that it did things better and the right way i think for that group of people at the time right. which then lobbied behind it to then make it what it slowly became but uh, and, do you and, not feel uh, sorry to interrupt do you not no, feel that the, that the message of what what satoshi's vision sorry to you know no pun intended stood for like the transfer of money you know the not the you know phasing out of nation states and bankers in the is that really of, his vision well is telling us what's exactly. his vision Exactly, exactly. But if, if we can agree that that's been the most successful iteration of like cryptocurrency to date, um, what kind of what are we really doing to fix the problems? Like, is the infighting is the is the, I think uh, the incessant forking is, is it really is it really going to help us? 
Well, I yes. kind of have the opinion that the forking is like the thing that gives distributed systems its value. I mean, the whole value the whole is point, the keyword. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of distributed systems is to find consensus, no matter the cost. I mean, like if there's if if there's disagreement between two parties, I mean, like take the U.S. government for example. Like you have the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and there's zero consensus whatsoever. But they also don't have the ability to fork. And I think because of that, that's the reason why everything is so inefficient. And I think the main innovation behind distributed systems is the fact that two systems can exist independently of one another and can live in harmony, even if they're sort of spatially within the same area. Value is not what you pay. It's, is it worth it? Right. Gotcha. You know, and that, that gets back to like a, um, you know, one of Nash's insights to pull that up again. And, and like, like we're in the midst of this conversation. I'm in the midst of the series. So uh, the bargaining problem where he talks about transacting between individuals or groups it gets at not what the sales number would be for this object, but the assessed value by. Yeah, the I actually possessing. love that whole. Uh, I mean, his whole kind of mindset on that is is, is yeah. I mean, was huge. Um, and they go into that a little bit in that that video that Jalad posted the other day. Um, kind of when he came up with that, um, can, they'd like briefly touch on it, but problem or hear about the bargaining problem in segment one. Uh, part one of that series too for those listening or uh, for anybody that's on board right now just on the chat so the way the way i'm thinking of it is um kind of going back to what teddy was saying a couple minutes ago is the reset that's going on um in the sv community is all, not not just on the back to basics in terms of going back to the original vision in the white paper but also in the go-to-market approach and i think it kind of relates yeah. to the idea of the, the Dunbar number and, and like kind of a, ta a township where you as an individual, if you are someone that's like infected with the idea of SV, you know how to communicate in a perfect way with your town, your community, your Dunbar. And you are going to be able to teach those people in an authentic, truthful way because you care about them and your incentives are aligned with them more so than someone who's marketing in this broadcast Twitter sort of way. Um, like BTC, where it's one global narrative that seems to be um, like the approaches about yanking value out of people to reward early uh, followers as opposed to just making everyone's lives better. Yeah. Um, and I, that's why I see BSV as being re really interesting, um, even just from the community aspect of it. And if, if no one's uh, joined the Atlantis Unrider Slack channel, um, you everyone definitely should do that. And Paul has like a really unique uh, kind of outlook on this because you you deal firsthand with with the with people whose sole idea of it is the transfer of money, not the transfer of value. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I, I would say that the general populace. Uh, and, and by that, I mean the people that are involved in speculation day to day are so far behind, like the time dilation is is years. Um, it's it's going to take a long, a long time for them to discover or it's just going to be like an exponential thing where from one day to the next they're they're awakened. Um, but I think it's probably the, the first one, not the second. Yeah, I think it'll be too late before it, it flips for them. Right. Like they'll be so caught up in and still there. They're path of of the most money to where they'll they'll miss the opportunity of seizing the real value 
the systems. And well, I think that to, to kind of breach into the SV thing, you know, <clears throat> I think that is what is attracting uh, minds as well as just eyes to it is what you've been talking about, all the innovation and just uh, the execution as well, that the people are just building things into and on to Bitcoin, which is catching a lot of people's attention because these were things that were said shouldn't happen or couldn't happen previously. So, so another so, way I, Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so another way I think of it is, um, and I was, I was uh, telling Logan about this, that I see almost like Ethereum being, or like it was a net positive um, because in like a fractaling sort of way, it inspired a different like macro Dunbar, like a massive number of people to be inspired by these concepts because the way that the B, the way that BTC was marketed in the early days was not appealing to them. So it didn't speak Correct. their language, so they, they didn't care about it. And BSV is almost like a, a synergy or a union of um, all of the different um, of all the different visions of Bitcoin because Bitcoin really is itself all of the different visions. It's just we're discovering them one by one. Right, right, and people are just they're just obsessed with the ticker symbols. Like Correct. they all they think yeah. is a ticker and they don't understand what it is. It's it's a widget and they don't understand there's no coins and that that's that when when they when they realize there's no coins there's not going to be any bitcoin left. For them. <laughs> that's I'm happy you said that. I was about to actually start talking about that quite a bit on Twitter just the idea of there being no coins. <laughs> I, I think that I think that's that's a good idea. There's sort of two two different angles I was thinking about been this or wanted to explore with y'all. Um, maybe the first, since it sort of relates more to Jaw and we get too far away from him, uh, an area that me and him disagreed on hard and clashed on for a long time. Maybe blocked me at one point in time oh, because sure. of these yeah, views. Yeah, like but um, but well, I was going to talk about on-chain computation and whether or not it's an inevitability. And previously, um, and, and I'm not sure Jal's current views, especially in light of, you know, the cat with the uh, bulletproof vest and everything uh, and the Bitcoin Marxism. But previously, his thought has been, you know, like he's been singularly focused on this Bitcoin ideal money paradigm. And, and I respect his like intensity and fo- uh, focus on that. But where we, we've differed before was he saw that, you know, on-chain computation was adding different externalities of value to the blockchain. And in his mind, or at least in my paraphrasing of his mind, he wanted to ossify Bitcoin as is, you know, optimize what it already currently does. But don't add new features to it. Don't add new values to it. Let it be as almost valueless or value independent as possible. And then when you start bringing in on-chain computation, you, you know, there's just a whole mess of externalities that come into play. And so he, he, for the longest time, seemed to be, you know, very adamantly against on-chain computation. And, and my kind of point or argument has been that, you know, even if you believe that and feel that way, and this kind of goes back to the earlier question of is the world ready or does the world even want ideal money? Um, you know, I, I think whether or not on-chain computation affects the ideal money thesis own you know interesting question but i kind of feel that on-chain computation is sort of an inevitability and then beyond that this is a, just one thing that i hadn't said in the the discord yet but i was talking to jaw with just before we hopped on here was you know i really think you could even have some sort of scenario where let's say the box never get bigger on the btc chain let's see for the you know next couple of years the foreseeable future the majority of the economic weight and the hash power and this real the true blockchain security remains with the btc change uh, for, the what, for whatever, 
Well, yeah, well, yeah. So, so what I was going to get to, what I said to Jahal was, you know, I, I, I believe this would be technically feasible, where you could have something where, yeah, I can't load code onto the, you know, BTC chain potentially. You can keep that small enough where I can't put a video on there, but I could load code onto the Bitcoin SV chain, and then I could also send like the execution command via the BTC chain, and you could have your code operator that predominantly pulls from the BSV uh, chain you know, kind of scanning the um, BTC mempool and, you know, kind of looking for this launch code or something like that. And maybe you can keep the block so small that I can't put code on Bitcoin BTC. Um, but I don't know that you can stop me from putting the code elsewhere and then executing it atop BTC. I don't know that we, we've seen enough like discussion on that and the harmony on that because the BSV and the BTC communities kind of have a lot of space and distance between them. So but that's, that's sort of my, my thought. to how much you... Uh, perceive the value of something so i suppose technically you could break up your code into uh sizes that you could get onto the btc chain it's just that at some point it may cost a, a very high amount to do that um, question follow up to that <laughs> and sorry is uh hopefully logan you can hear us because i'd like to dial into a particular point here you know, is there any way to interface Urbit with Bitcoin, uh, and how do payments potentially work via Urbit? Is that something that is um, sure? We can talk about. So, you can already use you can already operate your Bitcoin full node using the RPC API from Urbit. <laughs> um. There's a there's a little app that was recently written that that does that. Um, there isn't currently a client that runs the whole chain of Bitcoin on Urbit, but I'm not sure that you would actually even need that for a very long time. As as far as uh, using Bitcoin to to send some run command or to trigger some computation to be run. You could potentially do that without even needing BSV at all, really, sure. uh, just insofar as what you're talking about is just off-chain computation, which you coordinate. So, like, you could have anywhere from one person to, like, N people running that off-chain computation, and you're just saying, like, coordinating that so that they all know, hey, we run this computation when we see this particular hash go into the chain. Uh, so you could you could do that already, really, using Urbit or using any traditional computation system. There's nothing really stopping anyone from doing that, and it's relatively simple to engineer. All right. Um, it's just that people aren't focused on that. We had a mm -hmm. question, Teddy. You were looking to ask a question. Um, you guys started to address it, but is uh, going back to what Will was saying, um, are you kind of trying to um, – address the compression limitations with the like on-chain computing is that is are you saying that's like what's attractive hey, to Randy, you right now it. oh is randy here no she's not in room but she's on periscope right now uh, gotcha gotcha um well no you guys were just kind of getting into ways that you can sort of uh avoid the compression limitations of the small block um and yeah, I guess that's really where the where the future is going to lie. I don't know who can who can successfully integrate or avoid 
Yeah, well, I mean, maybe right now the the, the reality tension on the space because there's not really enough demand and maybe this is going to be the sort of thing where the demand doesn't really materialize until there is enough you know just passion project hobbyist type things like what we see going on with unwriter and stuff like that you know where i mean right now i don't even know that we need on-chain com- computation i don't know exactly what use case is, is is like severely missing in our world that you know if we have that tomorrow everyone would hop on start using it so it might be a kind of thing where the tools need to be built and then the organic community just needs to evolve um and then from that then people can start thinking of it from more of like a business mindset then they can start to really develop real tangible use cases but i mean it's kind of a mixed thought that i have like kind of comparing to the entire like 2017 you know bull run and you know i I think the vast majority of that you know people say tethers and bitfinex and whatever but i think the vast majority of that really was just with the you know ease of access of creating a token uh, via the erc20 contract and Mm -hmm. so all the all these new you know tokens popped up and it was very easy and you didn't even have you barely you didn't even have to really be a a computer guy you certainly didn't have to be a blockchain guy in order to execute the code and start a token um, and so I think that kind of drove it. But while all that was happening, I was really, you know, there were all these people talking about, you know, like revolutioning uh, supply chains and just, you know, uh, decentralized, you know, gambling markets and all that stuff's really cool. But I don't know that there really was an actual demand for those services at the moment or if they were just kind of cool ideas. And I think that's kind of been reflected in just, there's a lot of these projects that hell raised $10, $50 million in, in an ICO. And then now they have under $1,000 in transaction volume every day. You know, and right. there's not people even using the tools that do exist. So I don't know. I mean, I think maybe it's a it's a thing where the idea came maybe five or ten years before, you know, there was really even enough attention to, to do something with it. Um, but not to say that if it came ten years later, it would happen. It, maybe it needs to happen first with its own kind of just doing it for its own sake. And then, you know, once the tools are out there and the user experience is, you know, frictionless enough, then people start, you know, doing real big high value operations with it. But um, that's an interesting point to make is that maybe you look at functionality first and don't worry about evaluation until you can prove out your functionality. So considering that in the fact of like steam it and the ecosystem that is occurring there, if you're looking Mm -hmm. at its market cap, you may not really be seeing its market. Um, You know, I participate on steam it and have used a couple of the other, uh, guess apps and communities that have spun up off of the steam network but they're trying to basically replicate the ethereum model to a degree in the sense that you could spin up your own token system off of the steam network and i don't really like that model but i do really like what they've done inside of their their project of steam it and a few other things like utopian or dtube is good um, for video so well, you have so more I, that are coming out, so now it's going to be who who makes the big much or the most noise, as well as maintains their network effect, right? Because right, now right. you have you have tons of new social networks. So it's does Steam slash Steam it um, through all the poor news that's come out, and you know with Dan leaving and them laying off seventy percent right. so people that were working. Let them. me spin your question that, back around to. Uh, Logan and, and Urbit, you know, let's think about, well, what what are the really big social functionality tools that we have come to expect from our social networks? And I think that's something that Urbit can actually provide, which is like decentralized login or at least like a personalized and 
ownership style model of login where it's something that you can run yourself and verify yourself. Is that, am, am I wrong there? No, no, that's, that's exactly how it works. Uh, so generally what urban is going to provide for people is the infrastructure necessary to do peer to peer decentralized communication, a decentralized identity network, and an operating system that's small enough that the entire thing could be meaningfully security audited and eventually get to the point where it remains permanently frozen because the operating system itself is just correct. That's cool. What so, do you mean by identification system? Like what does the identification system uh, do in this case? So, it provides you a public key infrastructure, okay. which identifies you permanently and is civil resistant because there's a finite number of identities awesome. and the number of identities thus. So each identity thus costs money because it's scarce. Right. So yeah. you can have a general reasonable assumption that the person that you're talking to is at least a real human. Mm-hmm. And that's basically or, very much the same model that Steemit and Steam are using on their network. If you wanted to see something like that in action. And this goes, there's developers working on, on that space as well, like a project called Utopian. And I don't want to distract from, from what you're saying about Urbit, Logan. But I think that uh, these guys have an ecosystem in place where if you want to test around and play around with it, it's something that you can at least see the model in action before you jump over to what I believe would be the next step is in truly owning your information is what Urbit is going to allow you to do with it in that sense. And I think I think the rise of a lot of these ideas, um, so like 15 to, to 18, it really showed us like Bezos says this thing where the market on a short timeline is a popularity contest and a long and on a longer timeline it's a scale like a, weighing things out yeah. um, for their for their actual merit. And the way I see it is um, the popularity contest of the market and the market caps and these coins and everything that was trading during that that period and all these ICOs and how much money they raised. It's all about People wanted to dream, and we know that the market was a reflection of people wanting to think big and wanting to dream of a better future than what they already had. It didn't matter whether these things existed or not. It mattered whether we could inspire them, and that's why like, these, this topic is really nuanced, but it, BTC at one point, or, or like the idea of sound money and, and all the stuff that people talk about in that community, was at one point a good thing and a net positive? And now it can be a negative and people can't distinguish between Ethereum at one point inspiring developers to get into this stuff and start learning versus right now it might be a net negative. So there, it's, it's a gray area and it's a spectrum. But um, I think these ideas like what Urbit is, um, the, the vision that it's, it's propelling is, is inspiring on a level up above what the ethereum or btc talk about it's just it's another level of abstraction towards a, a brighter future it made yeah. me look back at ethereum <laughs> well you well, know I, maybe, maybe upon, that. I had in 2017 i had a lot of uh i shouldn't say a lot i had a few um very very dodgy uh project ideas asked me to work with them uh probably the most uh 
humorous one to me was um, a kind of like real estate style uh, tokenized economy where they were it was it was to replace the rent to own um, economy. So you would buy tokens that would grant you, you know, ownership of um, units in like a building. And then when you wanted to move or sell, you would sell your tokens, you know, and then you it would it would avoid all the paperwork and stuff. Okay, yeah, no, that's <laughs> never gonna work. <laughs> well, okay, so, so so maybe this, this is a question that one of y'all or, or Logan can answer, and this is just like my the, the growing concern I've had with anything that's based atop Ethereum is that on the roadmap they have this you know plan to transition to proof of stake and it's accompanied by plans to introduce higher levels of sharding and all these sort of things but i one question that i i feel like is a really important question but i haven't seen like adequately fleshed out by people that really understand ethereum technically better than i do is so let's say the proof of stake upgrade gets you know or, or they're, they're trying to implement that via a hard fork um you know, in, the, in that scenario, I think you've got a lot of Ethereum miners that have been making their living off of mining Ethereum for a very long time. And sure, a lot of them will just go into staking and they'll just, you know, shift to the new model. But I think there's a very high likelihood that we have a chain split occur when they Ethereum... They just moved their hash to Ethereum Classic. Okay, okay. But, but, but I mean, do you think there's not going to be... I mean, my, my thought has just been there's, there's... I mean, in the same way that we say, you know... Every, every fork of Bitcoin that should exist will exist. I kind of feel like it's hard for me to imagine that proof of stake gets implemented seamlessly and doesn't ha- doesn't result in some people trying to rebel. For, and for sure. I mean, there are going to be people, there are going to be miners that don't agree with, with the decisions that ETH Classic made and are going to fork off and continue on with an Ethereum chain that does everything that the current Ethereum chain does and follows the same rules as it did prior to proof of stake. But who is going to who's going to build on that and who's going to support it. And well, I think I mean, that's, part. That, like, that, I think that's why ETH classic isn't successful. No one's really building. Well, I should say, I should Captain frame ben that isn't successful in the terms that Ethereum is with uh, a lot of projects being built and, and the attention that it gets uh, in that sense. Um, but I think that's why, because when the split happened, the, the minority chain uh, usually gets, less attention and unless they uh i think continue on and and have development that is robust compared to the popular chain then it eventually you know will it'll never completely quote unquote die it'll just go way below to where it's not worth anyone doing anything on right like um we we could look at Any fork that or any project that's been code forked, you could say, off of a protocol that is no longer uh, relevant, that's in the bottom, you know, thousand or in the hundreds on ranking wise. And it's because they stopped garnering gravity attention. They stopped doing things that were innovative. They, um, I I just don't think that I, I see it like, um, well, Litecoin Cash isn't on the same algo, so it's a little bit different. But you look at that, right? <laughs> Litecoin forks, you have Litecoin Cash. Is Litecoin Cash still around? Of course it's still around, but who cares? I mean, you heard a lot about it right when it happened because people think, oh, a fork, that means free coins, free money. But they don't understand that it's not 
just free money that that's a project that people are, are trying to build things on and trying to accomplish something with. Um, and when the majority does not care, when, when the speculative market doesn't care about the development going on in a chain and they're only looking at it as a speculative way to make money, that's why I don't see that. That's why I see with the, the Bitcoin forks, the prominent ones, the three that are the SHA-256 forks, why they're why the two minority chains are even still relevant. It's because of the active development and the continuous uh, moving forward, even if not everyone agrees with it, they're continuing to push forward with doing things. So they're staying relevant and staying in, in people's mouths. Um, whereas that doesn't happen with a lot of forks and chains. Um, and when I say fork, I'm speaking generally, like even just uh, code forks that happen and someone builds a project that's based on it. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't, continue on the same way or garner the same type of uh, attention that um, whatever whatever protocol they decided to fork off of did or does. No, and, and I agree with that all from the standpoint of, you know, like, yeah, your fork's not going to survive if there's no real, you know, gravity to it. There's no developer attention. There's no mindshare being, you know, allocated to it, aside from just the marketing team and some hash power. Um, but you know, maybe that's more like, you know, what, what plays out in the long term, but uh, kind of my, more my question specifically was looking at, so like, let's say, you know, some people do try to fork this thing uh, when Ethereum does proof of stake. And that's not to say that the fork is going to be successful in the long run or even a month out or whatever. But when that happens, the thing that I don't feel like has been adequately explained to me is what happens to all the D apps and projects that are built atop Ethereum. They all do they all fork as well, and then to that extent, what happens if it's not just like a couple of miners that decide to say screw proof of stake, we're staying on this this current chain? What if like one or two, even just mid sized dApps, you know, decide that like they they want to put their money where their mouth is and they don't like this project? And if you have, because I mean, Ethereum has all these like second and third level abstraction networks that are built atop of it. And if they don't all kind of form some sort of consensus, I mean, maybe there's no issue. And maybe the reality is just the projects fork and exist on both sides and the teams will pick which chain they want to keep working on and it'll fall apart elsewhere. But could there be a scenario where not only Ethereum forks, but everything else forks and then there's just a massive calamity in the community <laughs> where, where everyone's trying to figure out like, all right, now which chain is my DApp on? And I've got to use both of them because these guys disagree. And so my DX is on. Ethereum well, proof of stake, but in line yeah. with that too, well, is like, what if some chains only work for some applications and sets of conditions, and that's why you're thankful that they're there? Yeah, and that was that was where I was kind of gonna get to. I, I definitely don't understand Ethereum DApp development nearly enough to talk about like technical dependencies. But if that is the case, then that that adds just that adds to the can of worms that I'm generally talking about. But that's where I just it, it's hard for me to have had a lot of faith in anything Ethereum for the last year or so because I've just seen I, it's gradually been baked into my head. Comment too here. Um, in the uh, okay, I guess I didn't see that. Uh, do you want to re relay that? Okay, so she goes, uh, from a security perspective, my concern has always been the securing of smart contract code. Uh, Follow-up is, I've stopped following their devs mostly, is something that's been addressed. So are you talking, Randy, just as a follow-up, are you talking about uh, ETH Classic right here? Um, not sure. So there's a little bit of lag between, obviously, like the questions that she's posting and then once our voice follows through to the live feed. But 
Um, let's just ask her there. Well, and then even on that note, I guess I would go ahead and about this upcoming fork potential, not as much ETH Classic, because as far as I'm aware, there's not really a significant amount of, of DApp yeah. development going on. Oh, oh, she is talking about ETH Classic. Okay. Um, well, then, then I mean, yeah, in, in either case, I mean, Classic to me is so dead in the water just because they're so far behind, like, in developer mindshare. It's hard for me to imagine they catch up or that people want to build the top of their chain because they're more you know, economically integral and they didn't accept the, the, you know, the Dow, um, fix. And, you know, maybe there'll be some people that are just, you know, think that that matters so much, but in my mind, the Ethereum, Ethereum development community has long since moved past that issue. And that seems to be like the main selling point of ETH classic was it had that integrity. Um, but if, if the developing community doesn't even care, you know, maybe that that's not really even relevant to any Ethereum or DApp projects going forward. Um, I mean, I just, I just don't know how ETH Classic ever becomes relevant again. Now, there might be – I could also envision some scenario where when this hypothetical stake chain split occurs, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of ETH Classic developers decide to jump onto the new uh, forked version of the current Ethereum. And um, I don't know. It's, just, it's hard for me to imagine ETH Classic ever materializes as something just because they're so so far behind the gate um, or behind the pack. So. Do you see them behind the pack in, in, in the way you're explaining it simply on applications that have been developed atop of them in the same time span? Uh, you know, I think that's probably my main thing. And I know most blockchain projects, I don't think I would argue about a blockchain project or success based on its, you know, subsequent derivative apps and higher level abstractions. But in the Ethereum case, I mean, I think that's what what honestly brought Ethereum from, you know, at least 40 to, you know, past, you know, high hundreds was, was the the, the influx of all these, you know, D apps being built. And so that seems to be Ethereum's use case, like it or not, is, is there, they're the the springboard for the the launching pad for these D apps. And, um, you know, I, I, I still have my, my questions about whether Ethereum could ever scale to become, you know, the world's computer for, for kind of other reasons and just the way the code is parsed, you know, serially versus in parallel. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, I, I guess my, my, my more thoughts regarding Ethereum Classic is that thing has just been dead in the water for so long because, yeah, relative to the rest of the Ethereum community, nothing has really happened. Um, but you, Do you, you think might, that it's only still it. around because of the speculative nature of of it being able to be publicly traded on exchanges and the fact that it's profitable to mine? Well, you know, probably, and I would, if anything, say probably more due to its its speculative nature and its listing on exchanges than even mining profitability, even though there's there's absolutely a profitability there, and, and that traditionally drives blockchain economics. But, um, I mean, I, I really think for Ethereum in particular, more than any other crypto <laughs> project, you know, it, its price has been heavily dependent on the specula- speculation, like, all, all these cryptos are partially reliant and Bitcoin's been a speculative game for a long time. But I think that was the, the, the niche that, you know, Ethereum really locked down pretty hard. And maybe this is related. This is another question I was wanting to spin into at some point was so what he's, role. He's adding a comment on here too. He's saying it, it can't scale, but that it was, yeah, I, uh, it was a good DAP launcher for its time. That's that's kind of my general view, but you know maybe somebody more technical could argue. I mean, in my mind, scaling is dependent on sharding. In, in yeah, that's token true. and blockchain technology is that like we're going to watch uh, 
hashing power move to the fashionable chains as the technology is able to be deployed for certain needs and one chain will be popular to solve a set of problems and if it gets adoption then it'll have enough uh, enough dedicated hash power to keep it running and if not then you know the people have moved on and the value is basically sucked out of that that project i think but, another factor that isn't thought or taken into account is that a lot of since you're talking about it as a launching pad most of these uh, tokens do actually uh even if it's not in their initial plans after they've gained or garnered uh, a decent enough amount of success in terms of their accomplishments on the roadmap and uh, general support, that they do end up moving off of Ethereum to their own chain. And uh, and what does that do as How many now that... How do you that, Phil? I see it a lot. Yeah, I mean, mo- uh, I would say m- way more than a handful. <laughs> way more than a handful. Um, yeah, of tokens actually migrate to their own chain yeah um i'd say that yeah i mean there's of of the out of the hundreds or probably that i've dealt with there's there's a good few handfuls that actually move off to their own chain um i mean the most the most prominent recently being being tron uh it was an erc20 token and then it launched and now it's on its own chain And not only, um, not only that, but now it's also it's launching its own DX. Exactly. On top of it, so it's it's kind of so strange. Uh, there's some ICX plan, you know, is Randy too their own on the on the, uh, on the Periscope chat. I so think. What is that? And this is maybe Phil. We got a little bit of background noise from somebody. I want to check that out. Uh, what is everyone's thoughts on depreciation of coins on exchanges? And anybody that's trading obviously can talk about that in, in their perspective. But I think Phil might be able to offer some overview looks at that since he's working on an exchange. Depreciation, do you mean just like their overall value? Uh, Randy will have to answer. If she the market value? Her overall value or market value. Um, we'll see in a follow-up. Because the, the rate of exchange, although has slowed down, because there's not as much retail money just dropping money into random coins because you can make, you know, 20% in a week. Mm-hmm. Um, trading never stops on the whole world 24-7. It doesn't matter what it is. I, I Right now I'm looking into um, more detail, like more in-depth looks at um, on-chain volume and, and trading volume of certain tokens and coins over given amounts of time and, it's really pretty interesting <clears throat> which ones are and I'm aren't. Getting some background noise from you. Okay. Um, heavily traded, and what factors kind of play into that? Like, sometimes it is purely speculative. Sometimes you have a lot of tra- because of okay. uh, a, a raise in hash price, so then it comes back to a different form of speculation. Okay, uh, so sometimes it, it's all based on roadmaps and announcements that invoke trading volume. Um, to clarify, but, she she goes on to say she should have said delisting. So the the to oh re-prompt, delisting, okay. right? To reprompt well, it would be what is everyone's <clears throat> thoughts on delisting of coins? Uh, oh, I mean, I'm from exchanges. I suppose you might say. I'm I'm all for the for exchanges delisting of coins. They have to protect themselves from from projects. And a lot of times, uh, when these projects launched, they may have had a very convincing a very strong uh roadmap development team and and vision and then you know things happen within uh 
businesses, corporations, groups to where things fall apart and projects fall apart and don't end up turning out the way they are. And I think that uh, exchanges should. On top of that, you have the regulatory side of it to where a lot of these tokens and projects two years ago when they were listed uh, weren't under the same scrutiny that they are today. So now you have ones that could be considered securities. And Mm -hmm. if if you have any customers uh, that would fall under... Uh, the legislation which would put them at the the exchange at risk them they have to do what they have to do to either a um oust customers which they don't want to do or b delist uh, illiquid shit coins that aren't really making them that much anyway and and save their their customer yeah so it's do you keep your customer base you're still going to trade other tokens on and coins on your exchange it's almost like they have to find an equilibrium their yeah and, and and a lot of a lot of tokens also don't deliver or there's a lot of other things that go in. like do they have a do they have a reliable like point of communication if something happens if their you know infrastructure goes down or, like do you have someone you can reach out and that they get it right back to you you know there's a lot of times when we don't when something may meet criteria to get listed but there's no one communicates with you from their team so you know why list a project um when if something does happen there's no one the you know to reach out to illiquid shit coins is like another <laughs> do you see do you see a change in sort of protocol do you see maybe um a way that exchanges try to account for this um do you see maybe some sort of insurance protocol being implemented up to a certain dollar amount in order to attract the money well, here you have to, to more you have to remember risky ventures a fully speculative market as it is any, any public investor is purely speculating oh on a project this is no different than investing in penny stocks right right and right right so <laughs> so if you you go on to ta ameritrade and you start investing in penny stocks and then they do a thousand to one split and you get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> is that Ameritrade's fault? Like, are they responsible for that? No. Using You're responsible in the for doing chat, the due diligence. The, the tokens are going to get eaten by the black hole that is law. And I yeah, and, and the thing is that these, these exchanges aren't not giving people adamant amount of time to, A, remove their token and sell it on another platform. Um, or, you know what I mean? Like, people are fully aware when a project is getting delisted. They normally give you, like, a month. And say it'll send out emails or put out a, a notice when you log in saying, you know, these five coins are being delisted. You need to withdraw these, or they will fall into the black hole <laughs> known as the Bitrix Abyss. You know, like I was just going to say, because the space is still so small right now, somebody with um, enough monetary influence and interest can obviously affect the outcomes pretty wildly of, of different um coins or offerings or any, any anything like you can, you can affect so much of this environment right now just by being a special interest with one tweet can affect uh an illiquid coins price you know so, what I mean? like so the way i see it is um it's actually the, the 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 penny stock analogy is really useful there because i i know some like like people like or, or of people that have made tons of money uh by working in the the penny stock market and you can become like a gordon gecko corporate 100%. reader where you mm-hmm. take over 
at a governance level. And actually, I just I was listening to like one of those uh, Andreessen Horowitz podcasts on Activision Blizzard a couple days ago, um, mm. and they and that guy like that guy acquired his first video game company by buying more than a quarter of it in the public market, and nobody at the company even knew that it happened. And that guy ended up running right. Activision for for decades. It's a real thing, but kind of going back to what um, Phil was saying about they're going to have to do what they have to do, um, like the, the projects, I mean. So the, the way that they're going to do what they have to do is all of this is about selling the or, or, or building the dream and playing off the dream. And the speculation is all based off of a narrative. And the reason that they switch to their own chain oftentimes isn't because they're limited at a technical level. It's because they have to deliver something yep. and delivering a new chain is the thing that they know they can do versus a dream that they're not sure they can do. So in order to boost their price, they're like, Oh, we successfully moved over to a new chain. That's a, a That's good a signal to the market. Right. Exactly. It's a milestone. And well, that milestone is like, we can move from Azure to AWS, but that, that maybe we didn't need to have that milestone at all. So it's just, it's, um, a lot of it is about just delivering for the sake of delivering because if not, they'll collapse. Anyone that, who, anyone who actually was a user of, uh, Tron after their mainnet and used their tokens on chain would understand what Paul's saying, right? All right. Because the chain launched and it was an absolute mess, um, substratum is probably uh it works now but i mean like another thing that uh was like that there i mean i don't know how many chains launch and usually have a a clean uh a good start to where uh, or i should say i don't know how many tokens have launched their own chain and have had a smooth start from the get-go it's usually just paul saying it's because it's part of the roadmap and they need to continue meeting their their deadlines or meeting their points to show that they're making progress in whatever they laid out to do in order to keep attention on their project. If it's not in the newsletter, did it? Yeah, if it's not if it's not in the Friday newsletter of of, a, of milestone achievements, did it really happen? Like that that's really the point that we're at right now, and it's 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 laughable to say the least. Um, I think like a a good example of this, I think is is block stack where it's it's not even certain why the the transition happened from a team where you would expect it to be a little different considering from the get-go part of their vision was about this like chain agnostic identity uh service and now they have their own chain which just came out of, out of nowhere kind of like you know csw came out of nowhere in in, in 2017 so it's just it's kind of crazy how these things just pop into the the mental ether and then become it become a narrative when the Nobody asked for the narrative, and it doesn't even make sense. So uh, people are just really confused, and I think it's going to take time for those those things to get revealed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sort of related to the topic, comments to say on this than anybody else, but um, I said this in the Discord chat. What role do or should exchanges play in consensus? And while we're talking about all these sort of dynamics, and the you know a lot of these projects they do, they're they're you know, 50% of the game at least is marketing because the vast majority of the crypto space is not really dominated by hard use cases and people escaping tyrannical governments or running on-chain code. It's vastly a speculative market. And so given that, like especially in scenarios where you have upcoming possibly contentious or really a community splitting forks or chain splits, 
Um, you know, if you if you have, and you know, this applies less the smaller your exchange is. But I mean, if you've got an upcoming fork and the whole community is like split on it, and it's a real, you know, at least perceivably, you know, it's minor miners can signal one way or another. And then we saw with Segwit two X, you know, miners can be ninety percent, you know, signaling and switch at the last minute. But when you have these things that are kind of hard to put your finger on the pulse of, and we don't really know how split the community is, when you've got something like, you know, Bitfinex or a big a major exchange coming out and saying, you know, in advance of this, uh, you know, we're likely to call this, you know, the BTC chain and this, the BTC2 chain or something like that, you know, do, since we live in such a speculative market and we live and die by the traders to some extent, um, you know, do exchanges play an unfair role in sort of like shifting consensus opinion? And beyond that, even if they do, that's one question. The second point is, should they, you know, is that a part of the response or how, how should they do that most ethically? And often, I think, you know, it, it like Coinbase, an instance, you know, every time I've seen them talk about an upcoming, you know, split, they seem to have been, if I'm recalling correctly, you know, relatively conservative and just saying, you know, we're, we're we're going to see how this plays out and, you know, be alert. Things could be, you know, uncertain and this could happen. But if you have a big exchange come out strongly in favor of one version of a fork that's coming up, you know, they, they might be driving the consensus more than the miners do, more than the developers do, just because, you know, they're bringing, you know, that they've, they've got the, um, you know, they've got the demand via they all the They can drive the price, but I don't believe that they can, like, all right, so, like, imagine... In a, in a situation like you're saying, right? Like they can drive the price and the attention, but they can't drive the security of the chain because the miners aren't going to be swayed by necessarily what uh, the exchange says. Um, no, you still have no, ideological miners that will, that will always mine a certain chain, no matter how profitable uh, another chain may happen to be for a few weeks, uh, simply for an ideological reason. Number one and number two, uh, the what you're saying about the exchanges having they 100% do um, because the speculative market doesn't care about the security of a chain. They care about you know what is being said about it and and what they think or they've been indoctrinated to think is is the best use case for them and for the coin that they support. And we see that with these coins, they get. Uh, 51% attacked and their price barely moves because the people that are betting on that coin or have money in that coin don't care about reorgs that are happening. The only people that care about that type of stuff are the exchanges because they're the ones being stolen. Here's a quote. <laughs> you know, quote. it doesn't really yeah. affect the, real the everyday exchanges. user. The everyday user is being stolen from on a double spend. The exchange is the one that's being stolen from. Well, the, yeah, what, what's, what's crazy is I think um, – a couple of things like so so Andrew DeSantis in like some some interviews said something along the lines of at a certain point the the miners become the exchanges and right now and that's because you, you they, they have you know natural supply from from one like on one side but they, they provide have, the liquidity they they have the ability to right yeah and and, and they can play the market way. how they want to by you know by even with with futures not being involved it's like it's such a messy game you could. As a miner, you have the ability to actually play the market, right? Like you could switch your hash power to another chain, short the chain you're mining right. to make money on it, then flip your hash back, make the price go back up, long it from the, you know, like <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of ways to actually like play with that to where miners have the advantage that the, the I would say the Retail node kingdom doesn't quite understand. 
Yeah, and and I think so. So they operate in a world that we can't really see. But similar, like just to going back to the the question, which is like what the role what role exchanges should play in the consensus. The exchanges kind of also operate in a way that people can't see, and by people I mean most of the speculators and market participants. And the reason for that is they don't really understand the exchange game, which is like this all out global war between really incentivized businesses printing money and dated like printing cash every single day in these exchange fees and their prerogative is not the thing right so like the change the way you were saying that the exchanges care about the thing because the thing if it gets attacked like 51 percent attack they're the ones that lose yet most of them don't see it that way because they're focused not on the things that are being like not what they're platforming because the exchanges give a platform to these assets and these chains, kind of like yeah, Twitter gives us a platform. Still money to them, you know. That's great. They'll just raise but, their confirmation limit to something crazy. Yeah, protect themselves. Exactly. And they're still going to trade the asset. Um, I remember. But, I want to say that maybe uh, Kraken put out a statement. Maybe it was Jesse from Kraken about why they didn't delist certain coins when they had been fifty-one percent attacked, and he said, "Why should they? <laughs> you know, like people still want to trade the token. Why should he?" You know, why should they delist the coin because of, you know, because of that? And and that falls into what you're saying. Like, their mind isn't on that. It's just that they'll then take the necessary precautions to protect themselves, which is add a 4,000 confirmation limit to, to a token that was attacked. So it may take you four hours to, to get your funds on their exchange, but you can still trade. And, and you could trade all you want uh, once you're on there because then you're not on chain. It doesn't matter to them. It's just once they're once you're depositing into them, but they're sending out from them. Exactly, the, like the, the traders and the incentives of the exchange are kind of aligned in that way. For sure. Like so, yeah. so the the yeah. traders are the exchange's customers, and their business they're in the business of delighting their customers. They're not in the business of appealing to users of the chains, if if they're if they're even are users of the chains. That that's debatable, and. Their customers are not the miners. Their customers are the speculators, and they're going to do whatever it takes to delight those customers because that's how they create a brand that's valuable long-term and create like any sort of network effect or long-term value where the exchange is a commodity business, but their business is to try to lock in as much of that as possible, and it's really hard in a commodity. So um, yeah, they really don't care about the products. They they only care about their customer. And as long as their customer is willing to hold the bags of these things, they're gonna facilitate that because they're 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 gonna platform the people as long as why, those people don't step out of line. Why was Cryptopia popular? <laughs> because they allowed people to trade. Because they 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 hosted tons of liquid coins they couldn't get onto the major exchanges. If people wanted to trade and hold those coins, they're going to allow it to happen, regardless of how much uh, manipulation can happen with the low liquidity. If people want to do it, they're going to do it. And the bigger exchanges want to protect the reputation, so they're not going to let that happen, which is why you don't so, see things like, I don't even know, <laughs> you know, you don't see these punting like shit coins pop up in the last four months. Yeah. On, I thought Cryptopia is supposed to be going through case by case, now trying to unlock all. They but... probably are now, I mean, after what happened. Yeah, I mean legally obligations and such, but yeah. I should yeah, have like said why was Cryptopia popular, not why. <laughs> so like twenty seventeen was like a, was a synergy, and that's what what made it so wild and chaotic and exponential. 
and it was just out of control. And it was a synergy of uh, of multiple things. And and those things were one of them was the dream of the vision that was being sold of this decentralized future, decentralized economy, these products that can unlock uh, platforms to build on and create that that are are still like really aspirational. Like like we can all still dream that they'll exist one day. But then it was also the dream of of wealth and wealth creation and being able to be set free and being able to 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 retire at you know twenty five because you made ten million dollars off of the Ethereum ICO or something like that. And those dreams were intertwined, and the platforms that let those dreams get extended to their 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 like their maximum, like Cryptopia, were of course going to be popular. It didn't matter that the domain name was some obscure thing from New Zealand. It, it really didn't matter to people because the incentives of the dream were so powerful that you were willing to put your money on something and trust your, that your, your, your net worth on these platforms that had no verification, like really had, there's really no reason to trust them, but you were willing to take that risk because the dream was, and the incentives of the dream were so powerful. They sold you like a Disney world type future. I had a conversation with someone two days ago about keeping money on exchanges. And I was like, I don't keep any money, zero dollars on exchange. He's like, none. I'm like, no. He's like, how do you trade that? I'm like, you send your money from your wallet to the exchange. And when you're done, you send it back. <laughs> like it didn't register that you don't have to keep money there to them. And I, and maybe that's like, you know, I've never, I, I never had that view that like, I have to have money on an exchange to trade there. I don't know if that is. But maybe uh, that's the nature of the old model changing into the new is the, the sense of, of, of who has custodianship, right? Also, the exchanges are trying to make themselves seem as trustworthy as possible. I mean, they're not going to tell people to keep money off of the exchanges. And they also want as many market participants as possible. I mean, they want as much money on the exchange as possible. So when they get spikes in value or drops in value, yeah. people can hop on and react and, you know, give the exchanges fees. You know, it's, 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 it's exactly in their incentives. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And I think what, what's funny about that is there's like another thing that Andrew DeSantis says, which is really interesting, is like the, the concept of time dilation. There's just going to take time for people to figure these things out. And there are sheep that need to be led by shepherds. And the shepherds for like the shepherding model that I was talking about earlier for DSV community of like you have your Dunbar and you're going to shepherd your Dunbar because it's in your best interest to do it is very different. And the set of incentives for that are very different than the shepherding with the sheep model of um, these other things, right? And these other things, the shepherding model is about let's get these people to put their money in so I can make as much money as I can so that I can be free. But in BSV, it's like let's all be free. And that's, I think, the, the, the fundamental difference. But for every good shepherd, how many dragons are there? Let's call them. Like, I mean, if if you have a thousand good shepherds, but you have like, let's say two or three dragons that are like, you know what? Those sheep are looking pretty tasty right about now. Like, I feel like it's very altruistic in the sense that like, they're, they're, the brand is strong, but, but the, I don't know, the gravity of greed and the, I don't know, the, 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 the corruptibility of the power that comes with it. I mean, I mean that's, that's one of the problems with zero-sum games. I mean, whenever you get any zero-sum game, you're going to try to get people to, you're going to try to get people manipulating other people in order to, right. you know. Yeah. And incentives are everything. The game of Bitcoin is incentives. And those zero-sum 
can become positive games. We build the right culture around it, which is why the reset is so important that happened in the fall of 2018. And I think the people that are in that really early understand that. And even if they don't understand it in a really concrete way, they understand it at like at an instinctual level. And they're trying to do things the right way and bring in sheep that are that that will be that, that are that are motivated by the set of goals that that the shepherds are. And I think if if you start from a base layer, like from first principles, building up as opposed to top down in that way, kind of like Urbit, you end up with a more ideal situation versus like the you live long like if you like the Batman line of you die a hero or you live long enough to become a villain and well, the incentives will lead you to that. True. I think what you're I mean, saying is true as it builds up, but that's only gonna work for some things. And I think it really only works for the things that have some kind of capital or time or other resources that they can invest into that project, you know? I mean, I think that the market cycles are important is because whenever we get these resets and we've gotten like two or three of these resets since crypto has started, it's like the people who come in during these giant booms, I don't think they're looking to make the ecosystem better. I think most of the people who come in are just looking to looking to make a quick buck, you know? That's why they came in when it was green. Right, right, yeah. And I think like you get these resets and then the people that stick around are ironically not the ones looking for a quick buck, but they're the ones looking to actually make the ecosystem better, but they're also the ones that profit the most from it. So I think that's why these market I mean, I think the market cycles are a product of human psychology. I don't think they're like they're it's like someone at the top like manipulating the prices. Like I don't really think on a macro scale the charts are painted. Um but I also think like it's just like it's a good thing for the ecosystem and I think to yeah. to all my friends who did not want to involve themselves in my magical internet money for years, you know, as soon as the price breached 5k in 2017, that's when you started getting text messages about Bitcoin, because then it start started becoming uh, a mainstream thing to talk about because of the price, you know, it was all about the price moving up. It wasn't about any of the technology. Um, yeah. And, and, and so I agree that, yeah, that that's what happens, but you see now that there are new people that are now entering the market because of the price being down. It's that I think there's more in before and kind of rode this way down are, are not as if they're optimistic and they're only for the money, it's only optimism to make their money back. Whereas there are people that are now who are interested. um, And there are some who are interested because of the potential to make money but a lot of people are getting involved now because of the interest in the technology because they think that it's already fallen and it's either going to, I had one friend saying like, I think it'll just tear between this and 5,000 forever, <laughs> you know, but he's like super interested now in the technology because he thinks that he heard about all the quote unquote, like building going on. Like I heard people build in a, in a bear market. Right. <laughs> yeah. So is really I mean, interested to see level. like what is being built right now. Um, amongst all these projects uh, because he's taking a more um, in-depth like technological look into like what these protocols are rather than can I make a quick buck like it's already shot up 500% like it's going to keep going I'm going to miss the train let me let me take out a second mortgage and put it in you know like that was the mindset 2017 investors whereas I feel like now we're we're actually interested in uh, the, the protocols and the projects being built within these these little communities yeah i mean i think like that kind of happens all the time 
Um, I think like there's more there. I think there has been more progress being done in terms of like expanding the 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 um, I don't want to say narrative, but expanding the vision of crypto and and building. I think there's been more progress done in the past five months than in the past you know year in crypto. Like I think you I, the the bull markets are good because you get these giant influxes of attention and capital, and then people you know people who who were in who were passionate at the beginning finally get the funding to actually you know uh, expand their vision and finally get the funding to you know, um, realize their dreams, which is great. Um, but I think the, the, the bear markets are, they have their purpose. Um, I and think that's a lot one of the reasons why I'm excited and they realize, oh, sorry. That's, I think like, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about BSV. Cause it's like BSV came in and like, they're, they're actually, they're a group that kind of helps to expand the vision of Bitcoin a little bit. Like it kind of got me thinking about all these different possibilities now, you know, like it's not just, it got me thinking like, it's not just trust minimization behind people and behind like, value and money but i also think there's a certain amount of trust minimization that has to be done behind like algorithms themselves it's like we need to find a platform to trust algorithms more it's like we can't be trusting the algorithms behind facebook and instagram and google because they're all closed source it's like um but i think there's a certain amount of optimization that can be done behind um, now do you do, here's a question for you colty do you find that in your own opinion do you think that uh Open source is always better than closed source or just in terms of algorithms. I think open source that's also like tokenized, like open source that is kind of put on a chain and can be um, put on a market. I think that's kind of the ideal setup. Okay. It means so I, I will, talking about focusing on tokenized kind of economies and like. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, for projects. me, it's like my, my thing is in order for me to get the maximum use out of an algorithm, I have to be able to trust the algorithm, right? It's like, there's a certain barrier to trust when it comes to algorithms with Twitter and Facebook and Google because it's just phishing site that is a mock-up of the, uh, mock-up of the Electrum site, or it takes them directly to the scam GitHub to download a version of Electrum that doesn't exist. So mm -hmm. when, when you have something that's open source and is a project and is a, utility that someone uses it also opens you up to like attack vectors quicker um because you have more eyes that have availability to it although and, and the way reason i say that is because you have all these projects that are open source on github how many people do you actually think are going through these projects and and auditing them before the public right. has a chance to get their hands on them i mean and because I there's not that, that many eyeballs crypto that it happens than in other industries because there's there's money in trade so there's an incentive malicious intent to clone an open source project and create their own their own version that's that's has that's malicious whereas when you have a closed source piece of software you don't give people the ability to uh to prod into it right you can invite security researchers you can invite at it but you don't have the openness of anyone being able to just clone your code and then build like a version of what you have to to pull some some wool over the sheep's eyes. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think like wait. So you're saying that people just like clone? They like fork these open source projects and then market them as the real thing? And then that's how people get scams? Not that they market them as the real thing. It's that they they will find a way to inject that into that community to trick them into thinking it's the real thing. like not like a so much, scam 
Fletcher was having <clears throat> some hacker set up servers that was pushing a malicious update to their update server. So if people connected to this, then they would be prompted to update to a version that wasn't real. It was malicious, and then when you, it would take your money. Well, I think there's like another instance why... where <clears throat> there was um, something similar that happened where it was like there was an update and it told you to update to a version that wasn't real, but it directed you to a GitHub. The GitHub was not the official GitHub, though, and it contained malicious software. Um, with Bitcoin Cash, when that came out, there was Electrum Cash, which was a malicious version of Electrum that stole people's private keys. Well, I think um, that's the importance of, and I think that's like probably Bitcoin one of the gold. main use Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably one of the main use cases behind like on-chain computation is that once you put your open source code on the chain, it's immutable. No one can mess with it. It's time stamped, so no one can move it anywhere. It's like that code will exist forever and Definitely. you can 100% trust it. So I think that's kind of the solution to um, that sort of open source problem. Where well, on that, on that note, I, I don't really fleshed out and explored like as a community and not, not just us here, you know, how, how on-chain code is going to operate because code doesn't really, I mean, in, in any other environment, we don't rarely just do, we, use it as do a we publish. Well, or, or, yeah, yeah, but I guess I'm, what, the point I was going to though was like, how do we uh, connect it and verify it to where like, yeah, this is like open source code that we put on the blockchain. It's immutable. Nobody can change that. But maybe we, the developers of it, want to change it. We want to make like a version 1.2. We want to update the code and like that's, that should be a good thing. There's still potentially, you know, I mean, there's probably a neat way to like, you know, make a solution that, you know, locks identities to publishers or something like that. But, um, you know, like, let's say I have an open source project and it's immutable, but now I want to add a new feature to it. Community agrees. And this is like a good sort of thing. How do I connect that? To, you're going to have to be able to recommit that to the chain at that point in time. With a sign yeah, transaction. But, 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 yeah, you enough. just recommit and sign a transaction that it's used. On a... Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe maybe also on a similar versus closed source software and us talking on on-chain computation and Bitcoin SV is, you know, do you guys have any thoughts about that, like, you know, uh, patents and closed source software and, and you know, ownership of well, code? I do. Here's well, a we, question we that we follow that up. I think that's where I probably disagree with them the most. You know, like, I, I'm, like, all for all the innovation that's going on, thing, but I'm a huge uh, privacy advocate. And although I believe that having a public ledger has its use cases, I look at privacy and like the way that CSW tries to say, well, like Monero, for instance, oh, it's a drug. Like, listen, when I go to the bathroom, public restroom, and I close the stall and I'm texting on my phone, like it doesn't mean because I closed the stall or that I don't want anyone to see. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean I'm doing something malicious in the stall. It means that I don't want anyone to see whether I'm peeing or pooping. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, Fair point. I should have the I should have the right to send someone. And if I don't want other people to know that I'm giving something, it should be my right to not have that. But if I, but for my audited money, you know what I mean? There should be a use case for that. Now, I think that that can also be used in the bad way, but it's always going to be used. There's always going to be people that use it. There's Exposure ways to equaling exploitation. Yeah. I mean, the technology, I don't think will be that like right now, there are ways that you could mix your Bitcoin up enough to make it hard enough for the people and technology that's around now to where it won't affect you in your lifetime if you did something poor 
or of bad judgment with Bitcoin if you were masking your transactions the right way. The the I don't think that it would catch up to you in a time if you did it right. You know, like there there there's a way to mix your UTXOs enough to where at a certain point it becomes a level of difficulty to where is someone going to invest that amount of money into looking into you? Uh, that would yeah. deal with like several developments on like you know con- quantum computational updates. I mean, uh, I'm sure. I mean, if yeah. someone is if someone is is really fixated enough on like not allowing your privacy, I mean, I I wouldn't imagine it would be that hard for a team to develop some sort of like algorithm to track transaction history. <clears throat> For sure, up to a certain point. So I'm saying, like, let's say you say you all you have to do is create new address, fund it from somewhere, have the have it funded from somewhere that's not connected to you, Mm -hmm. and then from there you can then mix enough your UTXOs and move it around even different chains to mask what you're doing to where it makes like a hypothetical number. For how many Do chains I have you one? would have, yeah, like oh, you'd have to move it around. I mean, I'm I'm just saying you could you could use a coin join and mix your UTXOs a few times using different addresses, being and getting, and then use a, a hot swap, swap through Monero, send yeah. it to a new Monero address, send it back to the hot swap for more Bitcoin, remix it in a coin join, send it to a new address. You have completely, you have UTXOs that are no longer to you or the original address whatsoever. Got you. Wow. Um, okay. So there's there's plenty of ways right now kind of tools that are in the legal capacity to, to obfuscate your transactions enough and and get away with it to where they I don't I could be totally wrong but I don't think that in our lifetime right now that someone doing something that isn't on a global scale like illegal enough to where they need to, they really want to dig into you. I don't right. think that the average person who just cares about privacy is like, I don't care if I spend 5%, uh, you know, through mixing whatever to. But wasn't there uh, the claim that a $2 million withdrawal kind of crashed the network <coughs> sort of, um, from a single Bitcoin address? Like, is so that what? I mean, would a large enough transaction kind of like mm, agitate the natural community 100 um, percent. oh yeah i mean you have to you know, like there are bots that are watching addresses that have x amount in it and the movement of it to see where it goes right because there are, there are plenty of traders and there are plenty of bots that act on those movements to place positions shorts longs whatever um that being so my- said it, that's if you're moving that big block of money in one like instance, right? Like those right. bots trigger when you move two million dollars. But let's say you're moving, let's say you just move, you know, fifty uh, k x amount of times over x days, and then you coin join it and mix it, and then you move it back out. Mm. Like, you know, you could do this in, in in session to where it doesn't trigger those. Right, right, right. Well, at least bots as now. I mean, I would assume you know there's there's at least a couple bots that are looking in smarter ways like that and that do accumulate that. But this whole thing might be a parallel or analogous to like the encryption versus decryption race, and that you know encryption kind of always stays ahead of decryption, and maybe to some extent you know that that's there's sort of a parallel here. One thing that's sort of related that I just have thought and said a lot about you know in the past is I I really think that in the future there's going to be a vast amount of people that 
Like if you could effectively start joining social media, start kind of build your own like third party identification, you know, uh, network that you're trying to ID people, you know, you've got people all like, you know, that millions of people or that hundreds of thousands of people, or however many people, whatever, not millions, but a lot of people, you know, at one point in time in their career, put a Bitcoin address, you know, in their Twitter bio and maybe they're yeah. anonymous, oh, maybe sure. they're anonymous on there forever, but, there but, forever. Uh, but, but yeah, it's there forever. And then any money that, you know, maybe with these coins there, been thing. attached to that, any, any yeah. transaction you've ever done that's been received or sent to it can be linked back somewhere. And, and that's the thing, like with, even with coin joins, what, what they're doing is they're just breaking up the UTXOs into, into small amounts and they're mixing them all around and then sending them back to you with new uh, UTXOs from other people. You could very well get dirty UTXOs from someone else. You know, like I, I've helped look into things for people where they've been dust attacked, but they're not doing anything wrong, right? Like mm. they're, they're a normal, they're some 50-something-year-old lady who just bought her first Bitcoin a couple weeks ago. And she got dust attacked. And it's not because of her. It's because she withdrew money from somewhere that had UTXOs from an address that's being traced. So now her address got dust attacked to see if when she sends it out, her change address is, you know what I mean? They do it to track the change addresses. They'll send you Can, dust can you expand on what a d- dust attack is? So a dust attack is when someone will send usually like a government agency or something like chain analysis would probably do it. Like you send very, very small amounts of Bitcoin out, like very, very small. And what happens is now that's a UTXO that you hold. So when you send that out, that UTXO will go out with your sending address or your, your main listening address and change addresses. So now they're able to link some of your change addresses to your main address, which then helps form this network of what addresses are associated to you and what addresses are associated to the other, to whatever address they're looking into. And they can kind of help develop and, and visualize this graph network of the movement of funds by having uh, kind of like radared UTXOs that they're, they're monitoring. How sad is it going to be when somebody's like privacy or financial undoing is going to be like crypto kitties or something like that? Like, oh, 100%. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the thing. Most people don't care about their, they, they, uh, they care about the idea of privacy, but they don't do anything to actually protect their privacy and their identity. Like, yeah, like, can you they, extrapolate they, on that? Like, just the average person? Like, sure, so sure. Like, just with, like, with using cryptocurrency, the average person, Jesus. same address. Just using passwords. All the time. Just using passwords. They'll re yeah, reuse usually on average it's about three passwords that someone has and they reuse those three passwords for all their accounts. Mm. Horrible horrible idea. Um, I advise anyone that's listening to this, like or just who's on, if you've never done it, like just take your the email address you use and go to like have I been pwned.com and see if you've ever been breached or involved in a paste or something like that. Because most of the time some service that you signed up for the last 10 years has been breached and the data that you had on that site is out there actually just um, sign up sign up for the newsletter because they put that out like when they discover a new breach yeah if you're in, if you're in it they'll that's good advice yeah but yeah people reuse their addresses um they they want to label their addresses get like they want to uh, they want to have the ability to like add someone's name to an address um that doesn't make any sense to me they're you know, the whole point of it was to be uh, 
pseudonymous or synonymous. So you have these multi addresses so that you don't have to accept the same payments to the same address all the time. But oh shit, they got my Neopets. <laughs> I'm not joking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you you like, will find yourself in that on that uh, site probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I one one of my many address, one of my beginning email addresses is on there, and it had like a ton of. Now, granted, I mean, I change my passwords all the time, but mm-hmm. for most people, they don't change their passwords. They're using the same password they've used since they were in high school. It's usually like, you know, something with their birthday, their pet's name, and their birthday, their mom and dad. You know, it's right. always something really, really easy that you could find out or you could guess in the matter of, you know, you could probably figure out in an hour or two hours the average person's password. Um, and then they use it for everything or they use Google Chrome. They, they allow Chrome to auto save their logins and their passwords. And then if their Chrome emails hacked, now all of their email uh, accounts and their passwords are also obtained. Uh, saving keys digitally or thinking that putting your keys and passwords on a USB is smart. <laughs> um, that's another one I hear a lot like, Oh, I mean, I don't know how I was hacked. My 12 words are on USB. Every time you plug your USB into your computer that had malware on the torrents you were downloading, it was able to scan your USB and pull whatever data you had on there. So that's another one, like not putting sensitive information on a USB you plug into your daily computer all the time. Mm. Um, let's see. <laughs> Most I people use, don't. I uh, a data share USB. That has yeah. A, uh, it's fully encrypted. Uh, there you go. OS. So for like uh, text file backups, because like uh, so for passwords, I use I use a password manager. Um, yeah, I use one password. Dashlane's another one. Yeah, um, and then I just keep my backup and other sensitive stuff, like you know, uh, scan of my driver's license in case I need that. Um, yeah, that but you're a, you're a different breed though, right? Like you understand that if you're going to keep it on a USB, you have to have a certain type of USB to encrypt your data and keep it there. Actually from the inside the group, but he's not on the chat is Luzong. Uh, he is, he is asking, does anyone have experience with Bitwarden? With what? I, I just know, I know, I know of it. Bitwarden. Bitwarden? Yes. Never heard of that. No. What is it? I'm not sure. Do you uh, want to ask further about that or comment more or drop us a link on that Luzong, please? It's an open source password. It's an open source password management solution. Okay. Ah. Um, it is. Um, uh, and it came out in 2016, and it's multi-operating system. But it's just like LastPass, KeePass, Dashlane. You could hash your passwords and put them on chain. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> just yeah, yeah. just like don't put my, them on um, your computer. Like, like people like are saving Facebook, them. In. Uh, Facebook allows a 256 character password. Uh, you can. I highly recommend you just. And people think that that's crazy, right? But like with these, what they don't understand is that your data is actively being looked to be stolen. Every human being's data that is online, there is someone looking to steal that data because you have something, even if it's just your social security is clean they want to sell that to someone who can use that to pay their tax file taxes. Okay. Like there's someone who wants information of yours, even if you're not a person of interest. So taking these steps of setting strong passwords, using VPNs, right? Like you should just use a VPN, not because you're doing anything bad. Everyone just use 
in my in my opinion. Like, there's no reason you should be letting your ISP see everything that you're doing, um, all the traffic that <clears throat> is coming in and out of your, your workspace. <laughs> most, most VPNs will offer just for people listening or don't know, <laughs> they'll offer um, unlimited bandwidths and like three connections. So like, uh, it's pretty cheap. It's a uh, pretty cheap uh, to get like one of those plans. I forget what I, what I pay, but I, have, I, have, I use express VPN right now. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty happy with the speed. I'm glad we're talking a bit about security. Cause it, I think it's something that people don't necessarily think about or talk about enough. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I, I a while ago, uh, when I was doing more communication stuff with my company, I reached out to some bigger accounts in the crypto Twitter um, kind of community to just talk to them about security. And I was like, hey, would you guys want to come on and talk with us about what you do to help protect yourself being that you are you know, a target? Like you have 100K followers or you have 20K followers, you make videos, uh, you're in the crypto industry, like, what do you do to protect yourself? And the funny part is that either they were, they told me outright, I don't know much about security, so I'd rather right. not talk about it on sure. camera. Or they tried to dodge it and just act like they don't talk about security. Right. Okay, like who, who doesn't talk about security? I'm not asking you what you actually do to protect your stuff. I'm sure. just asking, what do you think, what would you tell the people that watch your channel to do to protect themselves. You know, you're here promoting to collect all these worthless fucking tokens. Like where <laughs> are they going to store them to, and how do they protect them? Do you, do you go over a little that? Bit. It would be great to get Randy in here to talk security a little bit one day too. Oh, uh, dude, I would love to hear, um, you know, kind of on her side because she's, you know, that's what she does. She's in the security industry. Shout out Randy. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're, you're, you're being, you're being called up, you know, to, to get in on the voice chat at some point soon. We love well, and, and and but I mean, you bring up a good point. Phil, like all high profile, you know, probably don't ha even have good. I mean, like you know, like anybody that's that's like an actual, like probably all the core developers, people that are actually like building blockchain stuff. I'm sure their infosec is pretty good. You know, I'm not worried about you know Locke lock getting you know unmasked. I'm sure he. Funny takes, thing, you know, funny thing, right? And, and then just real quick, right? Locke, yeah. one of the most notable people that people in the space or new people go to you to look at things about opsec. But he was swatted, right? And and when you kind of look at, True. you could say it was for many reasons. He was a Bitcoin license player. Yeah, but that's fucking. That's I think crazy. that's pretty bad. I think it's like it, it's almost like humorous. Well, like, well, how and not, not not only that, there was the like King of Bitcoin Opsec has a Bitcoin license player. Well, there, there was something beyond that where I can't he remember. Did if talk this, about that. Well, he, he talked about that, but then there was also something where this was either at a conference, like a Q&A session, or this may have just been like a big Twitter thread that he responded to. But somebody was asking him about his opinions on OPSEC or some advice or something. And he said something like, you know, like, I'm not I'm not an expert. Like, I don't feel qualified to answer that. And it was like, bro, you are like the expert in the Bitcoin community. You're, you're like the figurehead of this, you know, like the hyper privacy stance. People, though, right? Imposter like, syndrome. Has, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that should just speak to people, though. Like, I think that's humbling also because um, I obviously I don't agree with a lot of the things that his ideology and stuff, but I do respect him. I do have a high level yeah, of respect absolutely. for him. I, I do too. And, his, I think and the object that he does take and things. Brand a little bit too, Phil. Yeah, I, I have I have a, a lot of respect for him, even though I don't ideologically uh, see eye to eye with him. But um, 
I think that that's kind of humbling because so many people do look to him for that and for him to say, like, look, unlike the Saeed Deans that would say I'm the emperor of, of you know, uh, economics and Bitcoin and everything I say is the only way, um, ask my partner Giacomo. Um, you have Lop, who everyone would look to for that saying, I don't know everything. Like, I'm not the one to look to for this. And and then there are people like me that could go that look at it and say, you know, he, he's not the best at OPSEC. He's got a Bitcoin license plate. And you have him just kind of like reverberating that. Like, listen, like <laughs> I may, t- I may be able to look back and reflect and say, these are the things that I should do to have good OPSEC now, but through living it, I may have not had the best OPSEC. So here's the question for, you, you for, ask is like, who is, the, who is the next best person in OPSEC that you point to, you know, in Bitcoin and who is doing a better job Dude, or the, has more potential to, I, to, I don't know anyone, but you know who I love point? in, in, in the crypto industry. And I wouldn't even put him in like the Bitcoin. I say crypto. Cause I like to blanket as security and yeah, everything. You're is, a dirty exchange uh, person. That's why. Yeah. Is Mr. <laughs> Mr. Choke on, uh, on Twitter. Um, he's like a hacker offset guy. And I mean, he, he, he's like tweeting out other people's, uh, ways they've been exploited or things that he's done to exploit and things like that. And, um, I think that it's definitely, he's definitely a good account to follow just to, uh, they're good examples of things that <laughs> you should not do. Um, not that he's doing, but of what he's showing, you know, he's doing to other people or has happened. You could say, okay, I should probably make sure that I'm not doing this or that, or I should make sure that I'm protecting this better. Or, yeah, I don't know who, who I would say the golden like boy or golden girl of OPSEC is in, in the industry. I, I think that LOP has an insane amount of really insightful and educational material on OPSEC. I, you know, uh, I don't want anything that I said about the license plate to be misconstrued. It's more of a trolley joke than anything. Um, because I, I think that he has, he has wells of, of information that people can go to and they can look at. And from there, you can kind of breach off and you can start really diving into any of those subjects and saying, okay, I really want to focus on uh, you know, my online identity, like how do I wipe that clean and how do I really secure like myself? Okay. I'm done with doing it online. How do I protect myself in the real world? Where, where can people find my information that they shouldn't, you know, and what, how do I secure my home? You know, there's, he has these, uh, kind of different levels that you could take, um, that if you're serious about it, you can kind of go through and, and decide what you should and shouldn't apply to yourself. Yeah, well, you know, just kind of on that on that thought about sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier with everyone you know has, has ever had a Twitter bio or a Twitter bio with a Bitcoin address or something like that is you know I think I mean at this point most even though people most people have horrible password password standards you know most people at least are aware that you know these dumps happen and stuff I mean most people I think just don't care or don't feel like they have enough valuable information out there or maybe they feel like you know even if someone steals my bank account information you know my bank will take care of me and protect me and or whatever I don't but, think they um, know how serious it is. Yeah, they, 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 they definitely don't know how serious it is. But the Until it thing happens. Was, yeah, no. But what I was going to get to was I think in the crypto space, we've kind of had this notion of like, yeah, like for a while, you know, people have been saying like Bitcoin isn't anonymous. That was like a bad myth that was started like in the early Silk Road days or whenever. I don't know when that was really pushed most prominently. But, you know, we, we, we agree that it's like, you know, pseudo anonymous, you know, at best. Um, 
but but beyond that, I think there's been kind of like a general assumption that like, you know, okay, so people that are going to be targeted by that are people that are like, you know, real big OG whales and people that are huge, prominent crypto accounts or exchanges. Um, no, but like the, 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 the average user, you know, probably like, or at least that has been <clears throat> the, the narrative has almost been like, you know, like I'm not important enough. No one's going to bother my Bitcoin. If but you're I not think, paying your taxes, I think you are important enough. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and beyond that, I mean, I was going to say that I think like we're going to have like better, not only like better like techniques for chain for like on chain forensics, but like we're going to have like machine learning, you know, um, amplified ways to like unmask people in all sorts of weird things just by like, you know, connecting like maybe, maybe you, even though you're anonymous on Twitter and you've got your Bitcoin tip jar posted there, like that's not connected to your real life identity, but maybe on one post six years back, you yep, accidentally exactly. turn location on and all of a sudden, and, but, but I mean, there's all these things that like, yeah, if somebody were to manually connect all these dots, maybe they could do it, but I'm not that so no one's going to go through that work. But I think all that like advanced, you know, beyond the on-chain forensics, but the kind of bringing in, you know, other other information that can build off social media or geodata or something like that. I think a lot of that's going to get automated and you're going to have a lot of people that, I mean, not even that, I mean, I, I don't know. Is doing right. It, they'll just blanket up the data, and then as they need it, they can cherry pick through it and look for a, it. Ab- absolutely, yeah. And I mean, can you just imagine, like, like what if there was just like a big data dump that was like just a an unmasked, you know, Bitcoin network, and it was like a collection of like two or like you know all the data up until this point in like one year's worth of like manual chain forensics and a bunch of machine learning built into this sort of thing, and somebody could just not even like you target individuals you know they can drop like a whole a whole list of like here's these connections that we've built side note randy just popped into the periscope hey man if you're hearing this you should uh jump on to the group get on the Ooh, insights there but i mean um yeah no i i i think in general the obviously the general public is like horribly unaware and has horrible like password hygienic standards um, but I think even even the vast majority of the Bitcoin community, you know, I mean, aside from just stuff as obvious as like exposing your private keys to malware on a computer. But I think there's stuff people just hadn't even thought about, like just how for like, sure if you, if you have a Bitcoin tip jar and that has ever touched any of your other money, your OG Bitcoin holdings, any of that stuff like your that's massive liabilities. And that's just stuff people weren't thinking. Not about. even just that. OK, so it goes even a, a abstraction uh, deeper. All these people that are, are big on privacy and and uh, having privacy with Bitcoin, any UTXO that can be linked back to an exchange that they use, an exchange address that they use fiat to purchase Bitcoin on, or cryptocurrency on, they now have a link from that address to the address that that UTXO was sent to and any other address that they've ever sent funds to and any address that address is sent funds to. And you can connect that all and you can see what addresses of those addresses have sent money to the exchange or back to the address that they have their fiat gateway connected to. So you can create this whole network from a single UTXO that's left over, um, which is essentially what they do with the dust attacks, right? Like they send out all these UTXOs, they go to these addresses, and then they watch them move around so they can play this map game and, and connect them. So they could do that with every any Bitcoiner that they wanted to find out who it was. All you have to do is find out what a, where do they have a KYC account? Where have they purchased Bitcoin from? What address is that? What UTXOs were in that address? Where addresses have gone to, have those UTXOs gone to? Well, you know what I mean? And you follow the map around. Oh yeah, well, well, and then beyond that, like people always talk about exchange hacking. 
private keys being compromised, or like, like cold wallet keys being compromised, or, um, you know, 51% attacks. But I mean, imagine if there was like, if Coinbase got hacked, I'm like, I'm sure Coinbase is like, key security is like absolutely top like of the industry um but, but what it will or, or, i think or, or, now maybe, 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 i think now not. recently yeah. i think that they just recently made some changes to to make it more like that but i'm i'm i would argue that zappo has the tightest security in the industry okay uh, okay i guess i i you know i was the the biggest you know market cap crypto company in Western okay. for U.S. standards, but but regardless of that, the point I was going to make though is so Coinbase is probably not going to have their cold wallet hacked. That's probably not going to happen. But what if what if some internal Coinbase rogue employee or does something happen where somebody data dumped uh, like their KYC you know databases where you know we could directly connect like na- like if there was it happened to Binance. They, they they had like a a name like so, Bitcoin address dump. I yeah, guess I so missed that. Well, not, not, I don't know about Bitcoin address, right? But the KYC documents, uh, I didn't finish reading up on it. I don't know if it was an internal leak, leak that happened or if someone hacked and was selling. But on the dark web, people were selling other people's Binance KYC information. Mm. So but what was that? Was that passport with their names on it? You know, like videos of them saying their name with all of the all of the obscure shit that Binance makes people do to prove that they are them to unlock their accounts and get withdrawals of X amount and stuff like that. That information, that KYC data and video driver's license, that was all being leaked. Well, so, that, I mean, that, when, that's... when about when about was that? When? Uh, not too long. Like within the last few months, I read something. Oh wow, yeah. I guess I, I missed that, but I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just you know a lot of personal data, and you now know all these people are somehow have some crypto holdings. But exactly. I mean, they could have, but they, but they, but you know, you don't know. I mean, these guys could have been people that like got joined in 2017 and like got on the shitcoin mania when Bitcoin For was sure. five thousand to twenty, and then they left, and they don't actually have any crypto holdings. But but Bitcoin. all it takes is uh, all it takes now is okay. So now you know their name. So now you look. Now you uh, find associated email addresses now you uh you know you could do this all with with scripts right and then you find their email addresses and then you uh you start running brute force passwords because of a data leak that happened where you have a password that's similar then you find the password of their gmail or their their firefox or whatever their yahoo account now you have access to their email something here actually on the chat here randy's <clears throat> dropping in a comment oh. he's saying uh binance awesome. only makes you insert your email and never head to kyc yeah well, ne- neither also- these are for people that get their accounts locked and for people that uh above certain trading levels All right. just for just for factual uh quote-unquote factual reference uh yeah binance, binance appears to have denied that they yeah they denied being hacked uh back in january i guess of this year so just for, yeah, they're denying this just for what it's worth. Yeah, they're denying it. And I'm trying to think, I don't know I mean, where I, where I, I, I had read it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure where I read it. It might have been on uh, Reddit or it was on a crypto like uh, blog website. But it was about the, the dark web sellers, not more focused on Binance, just what the dark what was being sold on the dark web. Which, I mean, that, that could have been bogus, but you make an interesting point, though, that, like, you know, it might not have really had all the Binance users, just people with, like, problem accounts who got locked for some reason or high-profile or high-value accounts. Yeah, Randy. That you needed the extra security. <laughs> and now, so now you're, now you're assuming that um, 
So, you know, half this database might be just like idiots that got their account locked for some weird reason. Because, yeah, I'll say but, this. But have, a portion account... of the database could be rich people, you know, like that yeah. they're, 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 they're in the database because they had, you know, 50 or 100 Bitcoins on the exchange or something I have like an that. Account so, with every, I, I should say almost every exchange, there's probably some I don't. I haven't done, I haven't submitted KYC data to any exchange except Coinbase. And that was only because I was drawing fiat from it. So even Binance, I've never submitted KYC data or to any other exchange that I use um, because I, A, don't have a fiat gateway. B, I'm not trying to withdraw over a certain limit or I'm only doing crypto to crypto exchanges on there. They usually only require KYC if you're trying to withdraw over an amount of Bitcoin. (laughs) Uh, You're trying to deposit or withdraw fiat um, or you have some type of uh, issue like... Let's say you've sent funds to, uh, I don't know, they may make you do it if you sent funds to the like cross chain and you have to verify that you are the owner of the account. Anytime you have to verify that you're the owner of the account that needs like maintenance or assistance, they'll make you provide uh, identity information. So for the average user, you're not submitting KYC data. I should clarify that, that not everyone is sus- is is uh would fall victim to this or fall anyone who's just made an account in exchange uh their data wasn't leaked it was only these people that had submitted this um additional information and they were under they were in select circumstances but i mean (laughs) but a good majority of those circumstances could be because you had a lot of money so that actually almost makes the assuming the leak is a valid thing and it's not just some bogus being sold on the dark web that actually kind of makes it even more valuable because it's not like you're going to have millions of accounts with like no money on there or just like, you know, like people that, you know, have long since necessarily pulled off or maybe people that, you know, in 2017 got a Binance account and put 50 to $500 on there. And, you know, that's that, but probably you don't have uh, the KYC. Yeah. Yeah. But so that makes the, the, if you have that list of people, you probably think, you know, at least 30% of these guys are probably on this list because they had a lot of crypto, not just because they had some crypto. So, um, yeah, that makes it a lot scarier as well. Um, you know, m- maybe the list would be less valuable if it had everybody, but, uh, well, I guess everything's so automatable that, you know, the, the, so, so the list isn't a big problem. In a way, the, the exchanges have an incentive for not to KYC and the funny thing yeah 100% because when you don't KYC you can't yank your money out so you become captive to their trading ego because Binance non you can trade as much as you'd like without KYC then you can only withdraw three yeah like that's like 10 grand but at the same in USD Bitcoin terms forget it but uh, the funny thing is, if that were to spike, this is exactly what Binance would want, would be the 2017 Coinbase effect, where you put in five grand and that five grand became a over the course of six months. And mm-hmm. that, um, then you can't yank your money out. So you trap yeah. trade, like things yeah. that you might not have traded had you been able to. Yeah, and now you're 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 helping provide liquidity to them. The thing is that people don't want to KYC, so they're they're gonna keep. And this could be very well why people do, why people did keep so much on on exchanges. They didn't want to KYC, um, or withdraw so much. So they figured 
it's safe. There's a lot of trading volume on here. It's top five exchange. Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> uh, Mount Gox was a. <clears throat> it's insane how much faith in yeah. <clears throat> everyone lives in a situation. Instead of thinking about things from first principle, they they just use the basic heuristic they were taught in, which is like the authority where you have people like like not like he's a person but he's both a person and a cartoon character on twitter and on youtube that gives these speeches that people trust and as a result of that trust they're willing their network in his on his platform I, i think that another thing is that like they've had issues and whether or not they were real issues or staged or not um it because no no funds were lost it added a layer to people's faith right like okay they were their systems were hacked everything was locked down no one's money got stolen oh wow okay yeah they're really doing something right happens again no money was stolen oh wow yeah they must have really really good infrastructure it's literally i mean funds are safu like this global crypto meme now that other exchanges now use about all it does is prop up their past failures as some sort of achievement. It's <clears throat> I brought that up about, this is a little bit off topic, but Digibyte, right? Like they, they have X amount of algos that they run on and they were 51% attacked when the 51% attack uh, hype was going on and the scare. And uh, it didn't affect them because they were able to change their algorithm and, and continue on. So they marketed that, like, you know, they're there at 51 and in my head, I thought it would be so ironic if this was just a marketing event, right? Like, I don't really see someone just wanting to, out of nowhere, be like, yeah, Digibyte's the one with 51% attack. Seems extremely profitable. There's a lot of volume on exchanges. Um, <laughs> I, it didn't seem plausible. It seemed like a marketing thing to, like, keep it going. Um, much like the Binance situations, I, I questioned. And I'm not saying that they didn't happen or that the thing with Digibyte didn't happen either. Just saying that, it seems convenient that in in the state that we're in where a hack on an exchange, obviously, uh, that, that is an end of business, but on the other end, to amplify a signal that we cannot be hacked or someone tried and they failed, not once but twice, it, it then gives you this, this stand to be on over the other exchanges that either perceived invincibility right 100 percent. well yeah i mean it's it's like it's a it's a feature that like new coins talk about now is oh we're you know like 51 percent resistant and you know changing algorithms and that's like a a marketing thing even just from the features uh advertising standpoint but yeah another higher level of, of abstraction or materialization of that is to actually have it be a real thing like no we have we, we see we are 51 percent resistant but you're not really i mean you, you did get i've always thought that about like asic happens. uh asic resistance oh, absolutely laugh. oh no it's, think, a, it's a total meme. Like, uh, but yeah those are the only two things that like <laughs> people understand about the possible like threat like 51 51 51 like so yeah then the coins are just going to advertise that even though they're probably not i feel like yeah i mean it's the same thing asic resistance so you're going to the security the possible advanced security of your chain by keeping it to only gpus okay 
that works. It's, it's, it's just like uh, it's just like how movies companies will advertise in virtue signal. I like how this thing. is kind of going uh, in terms of, of dialogue, and I, I want to shout out to Oscar right now, and because we'll talk narrative, uh, and also Raph, you know, like we talk about narrative and storytelling, and um, and kind of get into the symbolic structures and things like that, and archetypes over time within stories. And uh, I think that there's a lot of that type of iteration within the the crypto sphere, but I'm interested to see what other ones besides like security or the sense of security people see on the entire kind of landscape that we have. Well, I mean, it's just very talking. interesting to, uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no. It's very interesting to listen to the, to the conversation. Uh, and it gets very, uh, you know, technical, so I can't really contribute on the, the specifics of, uh, of sort of crypto technicalities. Um, but yeah, I mean, talking about memes, like 51% attack is a meme. That is, super interesting because that's it's become a meme but it's also real right 100 percent, it's real uh, memes are real and memes are real so, yeah they're they are exactly memeing is kind of hashing it's meme power as in hash power it's like the sure. minding oh yeah yes. and and i mean Phil i'm attacking up. your reality yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no, that's that, that's a funny take. But Phil brought up probably the better example, the better meme is the ASIC resistance meme because, like, I mean, that's that's that's. I mean, one most of these projects, I mean, are are, are questionably ASIC resistant, and then even to the extent they are, like, really working against <laughs> your own interests by doing that. Yeah. I mean, like the fifty one percent meme, like that's probably like a marketing way to like signal to other people. But the ASIC resistance is more than just doing the signaling; it's actually like crippling you know, your yeah. network security. And that's, that's just an just insane a group thing. of miners who like, who would adapt if they believed in your project, right? Like <clears throat> ASICs in themselves aren't that expensive when you really think about what you're spending on a GPU rig, uh, hash power to hash power and power consumption to power consumption. You're actually saving money. The thing that you worry about is, will I get my machines that I'm paying a decent amount of money for in a timely enough manner to be profitable if you're thinking strictly uh, in terms of profit, but well, if, you're just, if you're trying to increase your hash power and and still secure that network, then you could sell your GPUs and and probably make the money that it would cost you to buy the rig itself or to buy the um, the ASIC itself, and you're saving in electricity and you're you're gaining hash. So it's like I I feel like the miners who use GPUs, which which I do myself, but like. I would never be against a project that I'm using my GPUs to mine in order to try and cripple them and keep them from going from ASICs. If I really believed in the project, I would just buy an ASIC of that algo and keep mining that coin. The thing is that the the GPU miners only care because it's either their niche community that they've been mining with that GPU, so they don't want to leave it because it's their favorite sports team, or because they think that the profitability is going to die. And like that, by the time that, that they don't have enough money to buy the ASICs to be profitable for them, and they don't know what else they're going to put their GPUs to. Yeah. Somebody was talking uh, about Wyoming. 
here on the, <laughs> on the comments section. If you, if, if, if you guys, that, if, I mean, if anyone didn't know for, in the comments section, there's really nothing to say. It doesn't exist. Right. I mean, it does exist. It's actually probably relevant, relevant to the, the memes. Operational, well, operational security <laughs> standpoint. Because the whole Wyoming meme is a ploy by the U.S. government to steal your private keys. So, yeah, you know, and it goes multiple levels on this. Shift over to this a little bit and discuss, like, why. Because, I mean, the reason why the Wyoming exists, doesn't exist, is so important is because the only reason Wyoming does exist is in order to get you to move there and turn over your Bitcoin to a custodial. Like Wyoming does not want Bitcoiners to hold their private keys or hold their coins. And us at the Wyoming Research Institute, that's the last thing that we want to happen. We want sovereign Bitcoiners to control their own keys. And that's not going to happen in in what they call Wyoming. You're going to move to that that landmass of Montana and Canada. They're going to swipe your keys from you, and you're going to end up confused, naked in Canada. Imagine following Caitlin. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no. Well, well, just one thing I wanted to throw out there before saying not to cripple the Wyoming discussion here, but um, I'm going to find this article and pull this up and throw it in the chat uh, when I can in a second. But sure. I think it was from the, the guys that did the Tia coin, uh, like their research team. Um, uh, they had a really good write up about a year ago or so um, talking kind of basic manufacturing where you know you were talking to phil directly about the costs of you know like switching your gpus over to a6 and minor standpoint but uh there was a lot of interesting discussion in the anyways about kind of the i mean that's just from the the the, the purchaser of the asic but to actually get an asic manufacturer and how quickly you can do it and kind of the i got the one of the more interesting takeaways i think and I could be off on these numbers. Well, securing like, chips is the hard part, right? Well, like, well, yeah, yeah. 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 But, but, but he, this is what's hard. Yeah. And and this this team was talking, though, you know, uh, I mean, the crypto revolution has, like, kind of, like, gotten better at chip manufacturing than the non-crypto chip manufacturers of the world, where it was For saying, sure. like, you know, NVIDIA might take, like, might need at least six to eight months to, like, you know, take something from, like, idea to manufacturing or something like that. But Bitmain had gotten it down to, like, four to six months or maybe it was like three to four months or something like that but i mean we've all seen like bitmain's tremendous capacity to pump out these shitcoin asics like asics for like projects that don't even really matter and there's a huge question of am i even gonna get these things and is the like or or, am i gonna get these things in time profit you're not getting the first batch you ain't making shit no exactly (laughs) exactly there's dynamics that like you know, mining is such a thing. I mean, both doing the mining yourself and then chip fabbing also, or like being a mining uh, ASIC company, you know, is such a, um, well, it, it's just an, in, an industry that innovates with scale, like it produces, you know, massive margins with scale. And like, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to build a facility for 10 ASIC miners, like the cost of rent and ventilation and just all the shit I'm going to yeah. do is too expensive. <clears throat> but, you know, then if you're a huge, huge building, like, you know, a five or $10 million mining facility, you know, you just start thinking about whole different things. But the same also applies to, like, chip fabrication. And I think that's, you know, well, I, I don't know. There's uh, just also on a note of memes, there's the current delete Coinbase meme that's going around right now. And I think this was uh, Mike Dudas who said this the other day, but it might have been Mike in space or somebody else. But somebody was saying something like, imagine, you know, really participating in this meme and, like, you know, like, 
wanting to cut down or cripple the most powerhouse company that's likely to bring in new money in the next bull run. Like, do you guys want a bull run? If so, don't delete Coinbase. And I thought it was kind of an interesting point. I think not, not to say that I'm, I'm pro Coinbase, definitely regarding this latest stuff with the hacking team is an interesting sort of thing. But yeah. um, I mean, there, there are power memetics that apply sort of in other ways there as well. Um, now, if you don't believe in other coins, right, if you believe in just Bitcoin, uh, then there's there are alternatives to Coinbase. So the next bull run could come through Cash App. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and that was also 